0: We are going to the last chapter of the book of Revelation today. I was uh, asked on Wednesday night if there's a possibility of producing some sort of a chart to show you where we've been. So now that we've been through most of the study, actually this might even be the last day of the study, it's time that you see a chart. So you have some in your your bulletin there, but uh, I've got the colored copy. If you want to get your crayons out and color yours to match, that's all right with me. But uh, this is our study. Now, remember, our our study of the end times that we have looked at it here has been from the perspective of the church-age believer. That's you and I who believe in Jesus Christ. All right? There are many other details for the end times. And I've left all those off just so that we can focus on where we will be and what we will be doing. All right? So this isn't meant to cover absolutely everything scripture says, but it gives you a rough idea of what we could expect. We've walked through all of this already. The departure that we will all know, uh, either we uh, we will die like those who have died before us in Christ, or we will be raptured. Matter of fact, we will be raptured whether we die or not, because both the the living and the dead in Christ will be raised up here. We will be taken up into heaven. There we, remember, call it the present heaven. That's the one that operates right now. We will spend uh, seven years up there. I believe it will begin with the award ceremony. The judgment seat of the believer will be our first part. Second part has to do with the marriage uh, of the church. Uh, that's referenced especially in Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Just touch on it for a few minutes there. But uh, we have these events we are part of up in heaven, the present heaven. At the end of the tribulation period, which we have nothing to do with, so uh, we're curious about it and want to know about it, but we'll be up here the entire time. We will come back with Christ at that time of his second coming. The battle of Armageddon. He will finish. We will watch. All right? He will set up his kingdom. It's the second coming of Christ. The millennial kingdom we call it. It's a thousand year reign of Christ. And we will be here with him. And we will reign with him and serve. We found that true also in the book of Revelation. So this is what we anticipate. At the end of the millennial period. We have the destruction of the present heavens and the present earth. Second Peter chapter 3 goes into detail about that. Uh, there is a judgment that takes place called the Great White Throne Judgment, which we are not a part of. It's not our judgment, but I believe we will be there to see it, which will not be a happy occasion, I'm sure. But uh, we will need to be there because we testify as to the grace of Jesus Christ. This is what... Jesus can do. And uh, we will be there as as, uh, examples of his grace and mercy at the judgment of the unbelievers. So uh, that will take place. And then a new heaven and a new earth. Chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. That's where we've been for the last two or three weeks, studying that end. So here we are in our study. We're right over here. Okay? At the very tail end of our picture. Now if you want to catch up on all of this information, it is all on the website. Every single one of the sermons, you could just, you know, punch in the button and you could catch up on any one of these here. But um that works. Thank you. That's uh that's your diagram before you hear today, and when we go into Revelation chapter twenty two, the first five verses, we deal with uh the third theme that I see uh John describing for us in in this uh chapter 21 and 22 section we saw the believer and the presence of god and that still just it fascinates me we're going to be with him we're going to dwell with him how long is forever it's a long time isn't it forever that's what it said The presence of God. We've seen the city of God. We had a description of it here in chapter 21 as well. And it spills into chapter 22, which we're seeing in just a few minutes. Uh, But today especially, I want to focus on the believer and his service to God. His service to God. And it answers one simple little question. What are we going to be doing forever? That we're going to answer today. You Ready? Let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we start uh, our study here this morning realizing it's your word that we're studying. And unless you help us, we have no clue. We have no way to follow through with this. But thank you that you've given to us your spirit, who is our guide and teacher. And we totally depend upon you to teach us at this time. We know, Lord, when you teach us, you change us. Because wherever you're at work, change is inevitable. And we thank you, Lord, for that. Uh, work in our hearts, work on our wills, and give us a response that would be pleasing to you. Uh, we just thank you for the privilege of having your word in our hands right now and the joy it is to study it. So encourage us with it too, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's walk through it. Revelation 22. I only need about the first five verses today. Um, That we're going to look at. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Clear as crystal. Coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street. On either side of the river was a tree of life. Bearing twelve kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit every month. Leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of the lamp, or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign for, they will reign forever and ever. Hmm. There's some fascinating things here. Let's just walk through it as we, we get stuff. This is the last look that John gives us. The rest of the uh, chapter is a dialogue between him and and the angel and him and the Lord. Um, And so this is the last look that he gets of what God is creating and what he has set before him. We had the glimpse of the new Jerusalem in chapter 21. And this is kind of spilling more information out for us. And there's some very interesting things just in the first three verses. And and this isn't uh, the heart and soul of what I want to share with you today but at least enough to, to uh, let you try to picture it in your mind I always love trying to picture things uh, he says he sees a river of the water of life he sees a tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit if you just start with that much you're saying okay there's water and there's a tree here providing fruit does that mean we need to eat and we need to drink? Will we need to be sustained somehow? I mean, after all, we've got to be there forever, don't we? You ever think maybe that's a long time to go without something to eat? Uh, you say, okay, is there any threat that our lives are going to be cut off sometime in that forever span? No, there isn't. Is is there any uh, need that we know of that we have to have our life supported like like our batteries are going to run down or something to that effect? After all, we we have learned that death is gone. Praise the Lord. We've learned that uh, sickness is gone. We've learned that pain is gone. We're free from the presence of sin. What a wonderful situation we're going to find ourselves in. That's that's pretty exciting. Uh, but we are given water to drink. Follow with this. This is kind of interesting. He mentions it right here in the first uh, verse, speaking of this river, of the water of life. Now, cross-reference that with a couple of other verses. Back to, uh, um, let's see, 21 verse 6. He said to me, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life, without cost. Alright, that's after he's created the new heaven and the new earth, right? He mentions, I will give them something to drink. And here in chapter 22, we have reference again to the water of life. Chapter 22, verse 17 Jumping ahead a little bit. The spirit and the bride says, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It appears that it's available for us to drink, right? That's interesting. Another thing I know as well about the tree of life. Is that there for us to eat? Twelve different kinds of fruit. Hopefully peaches. We want peaches. At least one of the months has to be peaches. But here the same tree. There are many who believe this tree is the tree from uh, the Garden of Eden. From Genesis chapter 3. Remember there were two trees in the Garden that were identified. One was the Tree of Life and what was the other one? Yeah, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So there, there was a, a reference to both of those trees there. And remember, uh, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were expelled from the garden. Not allowed to go back. And the Lord told us why. In Genesis 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever hmm, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Well, here in Revelation 22, what do we see in verse number 2? In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Now, commentators have a lot of fun with this. Some have it a whole forest. Some people have one tree. Some people have a tree on either side of the river. There's there's all kinds of interesting pictures there. Uh, We're going to find out when we get there. But uh, with that, they say, well, that's got to be the same tree. The tree that was referenced in Genesis. Uh, Verse number 14 of 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. So there's another reference there about the tree of life. Even to this extent, and I'll I'll bring you back to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, verse number 7. When, when uh, the message was given to the church of Ephesus, the very last comment made to them was this. Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So does it sound like we get to eat? certainly does, doesn't it? We have the tree of life. That's just curiosity to me. I I don't know what else to work on as far as that is concerned. But I do know it must be significant if the Lord keeps bringing it up. He keeps saying it, keeps saying it, and as we just noticed here. Uh, One more point of interest, though. In Revelation 22, it said something very curious at the end of verse number 2 that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Boy, do we have fun with that one. Trying to figure out, okay, what do you mean by this? I thought sickness was gone. Why do we need healing here? And uh, I talked about the nations last week as well. The reality is there will be nations, and uh, the interpretations are interesting. But if you work on the word healing, for one, the, the word is actually our word therapeutic which doesn't always mean that you're fixing a problem. It could also mean that you're maintaining something to keep a problem from coming. There's just interesting concepts to that. But I don't believe that we're going to have issues with, with disease, uh, sicknesses. Uh, we have no reference to death. But the idea perhaps behind this is that the, uh, the provision is given to us that we may continually serve the maintenance, if you will, the idea. And I can't go much further than that because I don't fully understand it, to tell the truth. But someday we'll see it. And then you know what? It's going to make a whole lot of sense. And say, yeah, that's what that's for. But the idea is not that uh, we are going to have illnesses and we need this tree in order to sustain us because we've already figured that that's not going to be the case. But it's still curious stuff. And I just wonder, as John is sitting here writing these things down, can you imagine that? He's trying to write what he sees in front of him, and he's trying to put it in words that we can comprehend. And then he says, now, there's this tree here, and he starts to sketch it out. But he has, he's got so much to see and say that how do you fill it all in? Wouldn't you have loved to just sat down with him and said, now tell us what didn't get recorded here. What, what else is in this that we're going to see? And he'll probably say, just wait till you see it alright, there's so much, so much but these things are interesting to me and like I said, through the last glimpse we get of this uh, new Jerusalem that the Lord has set up for us um, verse number 3 adds that there is no longer any curse that's wonderful and it also says the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it so we've got quite a picture already, don't we? of what we will be seeing and where we will be staying now, with all that said, I want to address what we will be doing. Because that is where uh, my curiosity tends to roam the most. What will we be doing? The end of verse number three. And his bondservants will serve him. His bond servants will serve him. We've talked a lot about heaven, haven't we? It's amazing to me, when we see these descriptions and and all these things, when people try to say, well, what is heaven for? The opinions that come flying out of everywhere of what heaven is all about. What we will be doing in heaven. I I really disagree with a modern Christian concept uh, that uh, heaven will be what you want it to be. You ever hear somebody say that? I've heard it too many times, I think. Uh, especially in reference to Fluffy, the cat. Uh, people would ask, well, what about Fluffy? What, what, what's, is Fluffy going to be in heaven? And I've actually heard answers to this effect, that if heaven will not be heaven without Fluffy, then Fluffy will be there. I thought, Really? Is this the way we're going to, is it a designer heaven that we're going into? So it's whatever you want it to be, that's what it shall be. You know, that's very man-centered, isn't it? Very man-centered. The pleasures we shall have, that's man-centered. The uh, concept, I joke about this once in a while, but uh, some people picture heaven as a giant hammock on a warm, sunny summer day with a glass of lemonade and that's their whole conception of what heaven is all about. You know what the cartoons have always sketched it out to be. They sketch it out to be uh, people in white robes with halos and with wings and with harps and they're sitting on clouds. And that's the picture that many of us grow up thinking, well, that must be heaven. And uh, some teenagers always thought, that sounds awfully boring. And that would be if that's all there is, Really? It would be give you some uh, points of interest. I think uh, if you studied the Islam faith, for example, here's their conception of heaven. Uh, paradise, it's called the Garden or Jannah. I think that's how they'd say it, J A N N A. is a place of physical and spiritual pleasures, with lofty mansions, delicious foods and drink, and virgin companions. Now, I really don't know what the ladies get, but this is their idea for what the guys get. All right? They said there's seven different heavens. Now, obviously, it's very man-centered, isn't it? The whole concept, the pleasures that man can receive from that. Uh, The Jehovah Witnesses have their conception of heaven. They believe that only 144,000 people will go to heaven to rule with God and Jesus. The remainder of the righteous will enjoy pleasures on earth or paradise on earth, a restored garden of Eden in which there is no sickness, old age, death, or unhappiness. So there's two locations. If you're not part of the first group, 144,000, which means you're not part of the Jehovah Witnesses, primarily, uh, then you end up down here on the earth, then you'll be okay. Don't worry about it. You'll feel okay down here. Uh, the Mormons, also believe in heaven, and it's defined as a place where God lives in the future home of those who follow him. Faithful Mormons, underscore, uh, and their families will live in the presence of God and be rewarded with uh, in accordance to what they have done during their lives. Families can live together forever in heaven if they are sealed through special temple ceremonies. And those who are not Mormon... Will receive a reward according to what they've done in this life, but they will not enjoy the glory of living in the presence of God. Did you know that? That's what they see it as. That means if you're not a Mormon, you do not spend any part of eternity in the presence of God. Does that sound like heaven to you? Not the descriptions of Scripture, is it? The dominant themes of all of these, of course, are pleasures, free from distresses, rewards, and things of that nature. Um, We know the Bible teaches along those lines and gives concepts, but there is significant difference between the two. In this alone, we can start with that most man-based religions have a man-centeredness, and that's the problem. When they think of their heaven, they think of, how is it going to benefit me? What's it all for me? What am I going to get out of this? Uh, I think Peter even asked that one time of Jesus. Lord, we left everything. What do we get out of it? I said, okay. That's man-centeredness. What did we just see in Revelation 22, verse 3? It made one comment, one little phrase about what we are doing. Does it sound very man-centered to you? It says, His bondservants will serve Him. March this through for the next couple of verses. His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will have no need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. If you want the biblical teaching... On, the, on our future, it has to do with the fact that we exist for the glory of God. That's just the way it is. We exist for the glory of God. And our, our eternity is really a continuance of that existence. Do we exist now for the glory of God? Yes, we do. Guess what we're doing in all eternity? Existing for the glory of God. His bondservants will serve Him. They will serve Him because they will see His face. They will serve Him, and they will wear His name. They serve Him, they will receive light from Him. They serve Him, and they will reign forever and ever. That's how John wraps it all up in these handful of verses here. So let's ask, then what is a bondservant? If that's what we're supposed to be, let's find out what it is. one of my favorite Greek words, by the way, all of you should know it by now, is called doulos. We have our title for our Bible studies here during the fall and during the spring, the Doulos Bible Institute. That's the word for servant, bond servant. That's a Greek word. Now you know Greek, all right? Doulos. That's a bond servant. That's what he's saying here. His douloi, that's a plural form of it, will serve him. It's a devoted servant. It's a good servant. It's a devoted servant. It's one who who serves and is entirely at the disposal of his master. Now think that through for a minute and ask yourself, do I fit this picture in regard to my Lord? Am I one who is devoted to Him and totally at His disposal? wow, is that going to take some work, isn't it? But that's what we ought to be if we're going to match the picture. totally disposal, Total disposal to our master. Um, it's got the idea of a very permanent position. This isn't just uh, well, I, I serve him like 40, day, 40 hours a week, you know, or maybe just part-time now. Uh, we don't retire from this kind of relationship. It's a permanent one. And the picture, I think the best one, uh, of that kind of a servant, is one in the Old Testament. There was a, a verse given in Exodus, which uh, at the time probably sounded really unusual to the the Israelites when they heard it. Moses is giving them the law, right? They'd never seen the law before, so Moses is spelling it out. And as he gets into chapter 21, which he wasn't saying chapter 21 when he was talking, but he says, when, when he, he's sharing the law, he says, this is what God says. Now, If one of you should happen to be the servant of a master, and you love your master, all of a sudden I could see a lot of them thinking, this is never going to be my case, right? I'm never going to be in a position where I'm serving anybody. But he starts to read this off. He says, this guy says, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free. Do not want to what? Go free. His master takes him before the judges, and they shall take him to the door, or the doorpost, and pierce his ear with an awl. You know what that is? They walk him over to the doorpost, set him up there, set that ear there, stick it, and BAM! Put a hole right through it. What's that say? I belong to my master Forever. Now, could you imagine an Israelite reading that for the first hearing that for the first time? Who would ever be devoted that way as a servant? The Lord says, "I'll teach you about servanthood someday." One who's willing to really be pierced out of obedience to his father. What a picture! What's he say here for us? Bond servant. I like the picture. A bond servant. Throughout scripture, it speaks of bond servants. The first word of that is bond, of course. If you work with a Webster's Dictionary or anything, you have the idea of of that which cements a union. It's kind of a neat picture, the bond idea, cementing a union. And there are many individuals in scripture called a bond servant of God. Simeon was one of the earlier ones that we find in, in the New Testament. He was the one that was looking for the Messiah in the early part of Luke. And uh, Jesus was brought in just after he was born. And he was an elderly man and he saw him there. And he took him up in his hands and thanked the Lord for his long life and said, Lord, I'm ready to depart in peace. But what did he call himself? He called himself the Lord's bond servant. That was Simeon. Paul does that. Check out most of his letters. The very first couple of words: "Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ." Uh, Epaphras, Colossians one verse seven, one of Paul's companions. Uh, Tychicus, Colossians four verse seven, one of Paul's companions. James, the writer of the book of James, starts with "He's a bond servant" as well. Peter says that in Second Peter chapter one, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Jude. Starts out in his letter, a bondservant, John. In this book of Revelation, very early verse, chapter 1, verse 1. This is what the Lord revealed to his bondservant, John. He mentions himself as that. Matter of fact, Revelation even tells you in chapter 15 that Moses was called a bondservant of God. You want to be in good company? Look at the names that are all listed there. Bondservants, devoted servants, permanently united with God, entirely at His disposal, and what do you think they want to do? They want to serve Him. Why? Because they love Him. That's an entirely different kind of service, isn't it? A service out of a loving heart. That's what this picture is here in Revelation chapter 22. It's not man-centered at all. It's a love for the Lord. His bondservants shall serve Him. The bondservants are His. Notice how it says it, even here in chapter 3, or 22 verse 3. His bondservants. Watch the emphasis on that little pronoun that keeps popping up. His bondservants. They will see Him. They will see His face his name will be on their forehead he will illumine them what are we doing for eternity serving the one we love right that's what the picture is now ask yourself a real quick question does that picture you Uh, I hate those questions don't you we sing there is joy in serving Jesus and we could sing it with the deadest look on our face, can't we? The longer I serve him, the what? The sweeter he grows. Is that true? Is that is that uh, the way we see ourselves as bond servants? Here's my here's my my um thought as I was putting some of these things together. I think it's wise that we practice what we're going to do for eternity. Alright? If we're going to be praising Him throughout eternity, what should we be practicing? Praising Him, right? You don't want to look like a rookie when you get up there, okay? Everyone says, hey, you've never done that before, have you? Uh, Practice praising Him. If we're going to be obeying Him throughout eternity, what should we be practicing? obeying Him. If we're going to be serving Him throughout eternity, guess what we should be practicing? Serving Him. That's not man-centered. That's not self-centered. That's a focus on the glory of our God, seeking His will, seeking Him in and through the church right now. Here we are. What's the privilege we have? To serve the living God. Right? Do you consider it a privilege? I do. I think it's a wonderful thing that He's brought us into a relationship where we're called His bond servants. That means we're tied to Him. We're united with Him in that special relationship. The nature of our service will be linked to worship, by the way. Because it says the bondservants, His bondservants, will serve. Serve him, and you're wondering, perhaps. All right, then, what's serve mean? Is that uh, he gets thirsty for lemonade, we got to go get it? What does serve mean? Uh, the the word service is, is kind of interesting, and you probably noticed it if you're following a different translation right now. You would see perhaps the word worship in your text here. You say, "Well, Pastor, why does mine say worship and yours say serve?" It's actually the same word. It's the way it's defined. The concept of worship is service. And the concept of service is supposed to be worship. The picture is that of a religious type of service. A spiritual service is sometimes the way it's it's defined. Uh, The good picture of this is the way the same word is used of the priest in the Old Testament. Hebrews talks about it, the priest served him. And it uses the same word. This word was uh, their activities in the temple area, or the tabernacle, if you will. They, their job in presenting the sacrifices. First, second, just imagine yourself an Old Testament priest. You go into work, you go down to the tabernacle and of course you know what your day is going to bring because every day is practically the same in, in the uh, functions of the tabernacle. Some guy shows up at the gate of the tabernacle there and he's not allowed to come in and offer that sacrifice like you can but he's offering it at the gate. So you meet him at the gate and your job is to find out what kind of sacrifice is this and he tells you what it's for. And then you start the following uh, procedure. Usually, right through the gate, you slit the throat of the lamb or whatever he's brought. And you collect the blood in a basin. And you take it in there and you pour it out next to the altar. Sometimes on it, sometimes around it. Then you come back over to the lamb. And you would take that lamb and you start to cut it up into pieces. You, of course, have to remove parts of the skins. You separate the legs from the body, from the heads, uh, the the head, the inner parts are removed. Some parts are set for a sacrifice and thrown up on the altar. Some parts are, are thrown to the side and carried out and thrown into the trash. Uh, some parts were saved for a meal, depending on the sacrifice. But you had to do all that with this lamb. Every single time somebody showed up, that's what you had to do. Consider the number of sacrifices you might have to perform in a single day. Fifty? Hundred? How many Israelites were there? How many of them have, uh, came to the temple on a daily basis? Maybe not all of them all at once, but perhaps hundreds, maybe thousands would show up with sacrifices on a given day. In Second Chronicles 7... Talks about King Solomon's sacrifice one day. You ready? 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That was overtime. That's a lot of sacrificing. Matter of fact, there were so many, they had to call in everybody who was off for the weekend and say, come in and help. And they had people everywhere trying to get these sacrifices done. Now, is it possible that these sacrifices could somehow become routine you see the same thing all the time every day over and over and over is it possible to get routine in that uh-huh is it possible that we can engage if we were those priests we can engage in this service without our hearts at all oh think about it i mean you're who what are you doing you're sacrificing to the holy god and yet you're treating, this is just my job. So you're bringing it in there, not engaged in the heart at all. Um, is it possible that a priest might even be willing to offer up something that's unworthy of the Lord? You say, well, it's possible. Matter of fact, it did happen a lot. It's recorded in Scripture how the Lord was upset with them for bringing the blind and the lame and all these others, you know, instead of the, the worthy sacrifices. So, it was quite possible for the priest to look at this as a job, right? Just the routine, it's just what I have to do, they don't even gauge their hearts, and they're even willing at times to offer up something unworthy. In eternity, we will be serving Him. It's the same word. It's the same word. We will be serving Him throughout eternity. It's our primary occupation in eternity, is serving Him. Is it likely we're going to become bored? Is it likely that we're going to render a heartless routine of worship? Is it possible we might worship in an unworthy way? He said, but this will be heaven. That's different, right? So why must it be different than now? In this I'm saying, and and I, I turn it around for you. Why must our service today be different than what we're going to be doing for forever? if we're going to be serving Him with a whole heart, which I believe we will, because we love Him, and I know we do, if we're going to be serving Him in in, in this continual manner, in a worthy may, way, why can't we do it now? Shouldn't we be practicing that? According to Pastor Bob's theory, yeah. Romans twelve one you know the verse? I'll remind you if you don't. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Spiritual service of worship. Some translations like the King James, which is your reasonable service. Which is very logical there too, isn't it? That's very reasonable that we live lives now in light of how we will live forever. It's reasonable that we do such a thing. And what kind of sacrifices are these? They're holy and they're, they're living sacrifices. That means it's, it's an everyday thing because you're alive, right? Right? You belong to the Lord. You've been set apart to Him. This is a service which is reasonable. This is our spiritual service. By the way, yes, it is the same word again. Same word that He uses for eternity. He calls us here in Romans to live by. The Lord says, this is what I want you to do. Live in this way. It's your spiritual service of worship. So, that makes you a bond servant, doesn't it? That makes you a bondservant. You know Jesus Christ is your Savior. You're a bondservant of His. Are you a good one? Are you a devoted one? Are you the, the kind of, that loves Him? How, how do you serve? Have you thought about it? Have you reflected on it? How do you serve? Do you even serve? That's another question, isn't it? Note this, though. In reference to our service, we will see His face. We just saw that in Revelation 22. We will wear His name. Do we wear His name now? You ought to. You will, there. He will be our light. There's kind of a neat picture in the fact that we won't need any light to illumine us. We won't have to stop because it gets dark when we're serving Him in this way. Just think it through for a minute. It's kind of fun. We won't have to stop at the end of the day. You know, priests had to go home. They had to eat. They had to sleep. You won't have to. There won't be somebody saying, hey, your time's up, but we can't pay overtime. Uh, You won't become tired. You won't have a clock. That clock drives me crazy up there. It keeps moving. But we won't have that thing. We won't have a clock to say, it's time to quit. We can serve. We can serve. We can serve. We can serve. If your heart engaged to do that, that's what you will do, it says. We will serve him without any limitations. There's a lot of limitations down here, I know. Our service does not end when we depart to be with Christ. Some people think, well, his service is over. He's died. Now he can go and rest. You know what? He's just starting. That's what the picture is that I see in front of me. That's why I, I lean this way. When I, when I read such a phrase, and really it did arrest me as I was reading through this passage, saying, okay, Lord, we're in chapter 22, we're at the very end. What's the whole point of all this? What does it bring us to? And I see that phrase pop up, Service. Service. Why do we study prophetic things? To satisfy our curiosity, right? Just so we know where we're going to be. Just so we have an idea. Well, if we were studying Corinthians chapter 15, after he teaches all on the rapture, he comes to one conclusion. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What's that? Service. Right? Right? knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. When he was teaching about the new heaven and the new earth, Peter came to this one statement. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What do you call that? Same thing. A holy and acceptable life, right? That's your reasonable service. When John is teaching in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, he talked about the fact that we're going to see Jesus face to face. We shall be like him. And then he finishes. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. I could march through other prophetic sections too, but it always comes to the same conclusion. We're here to serve him. That's why we study in time so we know what we're going to do forever so that we can practice it now. Do it now, serve him now. Remember there is an award ceremony coming up. Guess what it's based on? Service. Service. Are you a bond servant? Are you a bond servant? Am I a bond servant? Now, some people don't find the practical application on this side to be very comfortable. I understand that, and even if I said right now, "Well, I'm going to quit in a few minutes," they finally say, "You get through that. Now I can rest a little bit." Guess what? I'm going to start preaching on next week. Service. I'm not kidding. It's called God's toolbox. What does God use? He uses the likes of you and me service It's the natural outcome of what God is telling us about forever. Right? Forever. We shall serve Him. So, now, serve Him. That's the way it has to go. So, either we are serving and our hearts are engaged because we love our Lord, and that's what I hope it all comes down to, or we need some work. I wonder why God does an awful lot of that work in Scripture. He must know us pretty well. So this is where my direction is leading me. That we need to talk about service, a study of service of Christ, the joys of that, the the privilege of that, all that God is doing that we might be good bond servants, and I hope that's what we are. I, I want you to, to think about that, especially this week. All right? There's your homework. Think about the simple question Am I a good bond servant? Am I a good bondservant? Ask yourself that, okay? Take some time to think about that. Pray about that. Talk to the Lord about that. Am I a good bondservant? You will spend eternity as a bondservant. He goes on to add, the very last phrase I read to you, and they will reign forever and ever. Isn't that Wonderful reigning forever and ever as a bond servant. Let's talk to our Lord about it. I think it's time for us to pray anyway. Lord, we have your word in front of us. And this this is a section we truly need to focus upon. It reflects on our lives right now, where we live, what we do, how we spend this next week. It's all wrapped up in the fact that we belong to you. Our desire, I trust, Lord, I really, really trust is that we love You. We want to serve You. Your will. Your glory. Because of our devotion to You. Lord, You've already told us what it shall be forever. May it be true in the present as well. Work in these hearts of ours, Lord. We really need it. We come before You today and, and ask two things. Number one, Lord... Extend to us more of that mercy. We do need that especially. For too often when we see this and we see our own reflection, we realize how wonderful the mercy of God is. That you have uh, seen all that we've done and you've uh, been so patient toward us. You've given to us your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness over and over and over again. And Lord, we praise you for that. Thank you. But we're also mindful, Lord, of the need of strength. For apart from you, we can do nothing. And we are totally dependent on what you provide for us here. So, in reference to service, Lord, we need you. We need you desperately. Teach us these things, Lord, we pray. Engage our hearts even now to to be excited about the week ahead and how we can serve you on this earth for your honor, for your glory,